everyone. Welcome to Generative Energy number 69 with your host, me, Danny Urati. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Give us a like, subscribe, all of that stuff. Uh, this is the second time I'm recording this, and we won't even talk about why the first one didn't go well. It's because I forgot to hit record. So I'm going to try to act surprised for all these questions, but they were very good questions, and so um, we'll all just learn more answering them again, I think. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for hanging out. Sincerely appreciate it. Uh, okay, the one bit of housekeeping I need to talk about before we get too deep in any, into anything is the new Substack. So dannyroddy.substack.com. And so you can go to the subscribe. It's free. And then you'll just get emails whenever a new piece of content is released. I mean, the podcast is released, but I've been interspersing articles in here. So Quick Thoughts on Carnivore is an older article. Demystifying Thyroid Supplementation is an older one, but those were both very popular. So I moved them over here and then I had a burst of inspiration and wrote uh, four common misconceptions about the bioenergetic view of pattern hair loss and posted that a few days ago. And so far, people have said they liked it. So uh, check that out and subscribe. And that way, you know, like uh, Substack is saying they're censorship resistant, you know, and you should go on there if you have ideas that clash with the mainstream, you know. And so crossing the fingers, you know, that that is actually what they're about. But who knows these days? But anyways... So, uh, yeah, okay, so let's get into these questions. And if I didn't put your question on here, it's just because I didn't know what it was. It wasn't anything personal. Oh, you know what? Before we get to the questions, let's talk about the mission statement for these solo streams. So if anything good comes out of this hour that we hang out, <laughs> hopefully it's shedding light on underutilized resources, inspiring people to create their own resources like Evernote or Notion or Rome or Obsidian is another one, inspiring people to experiment, and Bucky Fuller said, every time man makes a new experiment, he always learns more. He cannot learn less. And Carl Rogers said, experience is for me the highest authority. The touchstone of validity is my own experience. And Bucky Fuller said, I'm not a genius. I'm just a tremendous bundle of experience. And then Abraham Maslow said, you will either step forward into growth or you'll step back into safety. And I'm not paying lip service to these things. I honestly believe that this whole health, nutrition, physiology thing is um, a whole developmental process. And I talk to people every day at different points of discovery about themselves and what's going on, you know, and I'm in that same boat as well, you know, and I, I don't think it's uh, I think I just respect the process of people finding the bioenergetic point of view or thyroid or stress and being like, aha, there's something here. And then going through all the things that everybody always goes through with all this stuff. And there's that quote, uh, by, I can't play. This is the second time I forgot the name, <laughs> but, uh, if the path before you is clear, it means you're on somebody else's, you know, and I really strongly believe that, you know? So anyways, let's get to these questions. Okay, so these first ones are from Twitter. Uh, do you have any long-term goals you're working towards at the moment? I honestly can't say that I am. You know, uh, maybe if YouTube wasn't a dumpster fire, like I would have some kind of subscriber goal or something, but I just <laughs> just don't. You know, I'm just hoping we don't get uh, removed off of it, you know? Uh, so I'm ecstatic with how things are going. You know, the podcast is even though, you know, we have a small dedicated listenership, it's just the most fun to do. And it took a lot of hard work to get there. You know, I think I, I think I might've talked about this before. And so again, the hard work paid up, paid off. It's fun to do. Uh, we Ray being involved is just, uh, I'm on cloud nine, you know, I'm ecstatic that this isn't even my, my forte. You know, I don't think I'm a good podcast or anything. I'm not saying that to disparage myself. I, I'm just saying I'm naturally not good at that. You know, that's not my thing. And the fact that we can have fun episodes and is just, and it, and it took a lot of work to get there is just, I'm happy as a clam. You know, it's uh it's, it doesn't get much better than that. Um, but it, as for anything else, I was working on another book and then I just, uh, I just lost a lot of enthusiasm for it. And so I put a lot of my energy into the podcasting stuff and doing that very consistently rather than spending untold hours writing a book. And to be honest, I just don't think that many people read, you know, and it would just be a huge effort for maybe not that much, like I'm using air quotes here, reward in terms of like how many people would see it, how many people would actually read it. And it would just, um, 
So again, maybe my time is spent better releasing articles on Substack or something. Okay, uh, is there any way to stop or reverse gum recession? I've talked to a few people that their oral health always seem to stem from really poor intestinal health. And so, um, you know what? I didn't even open up my Evernote. <laughs> okay, and you know what? I have to do one other thing. Hold on, people. Just uh, wait it out here. I have to do some tech things, and I don't want to edit this out. <laughs> Let me flip, flip this to light. Okay, we're all good. Okay, back to the reg reg regularly scheduled program. <laughs> Um, is there any way to stop or reverse gum recession? Um, what I was saying was a lot of people I've talked to that have had that issue. It's usually stemming. It seems like it's stemming from poor intestinal health. And so, uh, I would ask this person more questions about what, what was going on, you know? Um, but I think also the saliva not only affects the teeth, but I think it affects the gum health as well. And so I think it would really fit into all the things we're always talking about from thyroid function to vitamin D status to health of the intestine and trying to fix all those things like spinning a lot of plates at the same time. Okay, uh, does DHEA have anything to do with sugar directly in regards to the cell? I'm sure it does. Uh, well, in, in terms of, uh, I don't know if I have any notes on this, but I wouldn't be surprised if it activated cer certain parts of the respiratory chain, you know? Um but I have more information on how it, like, uh, for example, parachute jumpers. I think it's well known that in like a healthy person, cortisol goes up, but also DHEA. And in a low thyroid or sick or hypothyroid person, they you need thyroid as the cofactor to produce DHEA. And so when your thyroid is low, you start producing less pregnenolone, progesterone, and DHEA. And, and so then you have unopposed cortisol. And of course, co cortisol is... Um, I know I have a paper talks about, is it diabetes? Like the, the amount of cortisol being associated. I'm like, I've got to zoom in here because it's so small. Oh yeah. Diabetes related to the number of complications here. Yeah. You guys can see this. Um, in type two diabetic subjects, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal activity is enhanced in patients with diabetes complications. And the degree of cortisol secretion is related to the presence and number of diabetes uh, complications. So anyways, just the promoting the release of free fatty acids. Um, it is important to point out that cortisol increases lipolysis and non-esterified free fatty acid concentrations. Of note is the modest correlation between uh, NEFA and concentration with percentage of gluconeogenesis. So anyways, everything insulin resistance, diabetes, or poor glucose metabolism, uh, I think relates to high cortisol and DHEA opposes that. Let's just... Type that in for good measure. Can't see anything. <laughs> uh, what was the paper I dipped into last? Uh, reading here. Uh, decreased DHA and high cortisol during injury. Not really what we're looking for. Anyways, I don't really have a paper off the top of my head, but I'm sure if I took some time to... Oh, here's that parachute paper that I was talking about. Um, multifactorial steroid. Anyways, I'll have, to, I'll have to find it later. I'm sure I, I'm positive I have something in here, but it's going to take... I don't know if it's good content to look for it. Anyways, uh, the one other thing I was thinking of is... Oh, you know what? I was... <laughs> There's a, a thyroid a tag, thyroid... This is the paper I brought up on the last time. Oh, this was the paper. Um, anyways, DHEA promotes thermogenesis, something I first heard from Ray Pete. And this paper was is really excellent. It talks about DHEA being an anti-prolactin, which there are, I have a few papers talking about that relationship, but this is the thing that I was looking for. Uh, Lardy et al. were the first to speak in detail of parallelisms between function of the thyroid, thyroid hormones and action of DHEA. In that regard, the key relationship between thyroid action and DHEA is that uh, they both stimulate thermogenesis. So, uh, yeah, and do I have anything? I... No, what can I spell this? Uh, I don't, I don't, I might have not spelled that right, but um, let me just do one more try. 
I'll have to look for it later. <laughs> Guys, appreciate hanging out. Uh, just took 10 minutes to answer this question uh, because I have poor search skills on my Evernote. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to all notes here. Okay. Okay, anyways, I I didn't even answer your question. I, I That's a great question. I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm sure I could find something saying it stimulated mitochondrial respiration. In fact, I know I have something that says that. But um, anyways, okay. Uh, a beginner's question, raw milk only, or is it any any other kind that's okay? I'm not a only raw milk person. I know those people exist. It's It's worth trying. You know, if you have access to that and you have access to other brands, whatever, digest the best. Uh, tastes the best and is affordable and a person can drink a lot of, I think that's the right milk and that may or may not be raw milk. Um, also overall basic to do's for women with PCOS with acne and hair loss, overweight, also good books, resources for the, this that you recommend. I'd recommend ratepeat.com <laughs> and then watching his interviews and stuff. I don't think you're going to get a more coherent, quick way of synthesizing all this information in like a interpretable, interpretable, is that a word, uh, way. And, and anyways, uh, PCOS, uh, okay. So this one by Giorgio Polis, uh, they say women with PCOS, particularly those with insulin resistance present a significantly decreased, uh, basal metabolic rate. And this is from Broda Barnes. And he says, uh, the need for other surgery may be minimized by adequate thyroid therapy in women with low thyroid function. Cysts on the ovary, are common in such women, and correction of the thyroid deficiency often eliminates the cysts. Oh, and then Ray's quote was, animal experiments show that a lack of thyroid hormone cause, uh, can cause cystic ovaries. So really, all the things we're always talking about from maybe getting labs for TSH, total cholesterol, prolactin, vitamin D, parathyroid hormone, serum phosphorus, uh, uh, one other one, one, I think, uh, reverse T3, the, checking the thyroid function, checking the pulse and temperature, um, using aspirin, lower estrogen. I think that is the thing that's, uh, antagonizing the adrenals to produce, uh, androgens. And, but the estrogen is antagonizing the adrenals to produce the androgens. And we could go on here, um, more, but I think I'll, if I take this much time for each question, I might never get through all these, um, or just one paper. So is this, uh, yeah. Uh, in conclusion, these data provide evidence that estrogen is at least one factor that influences adrenal androgen sensitivity in PCOS and may help explain the frequent finding of adrenal hyperandrogenism in this syndrome. Okay. In uh, resources and books. Uh, okay, we already talked about that. Uh, okay, guys, thank you so much. Give this a like. really helps me out. I, I appreciate it. You guys said you liked these uh, solo Q&As, so I'm really doing this for those people that said they enjoyed it. I thought nobody liked these. <laughs> and so here we are. We're, we're doing them now. <laughs> okay. Uh, how do you prepare food when on the go? It can be hard to find healthy options when you don't have access to the kitchen. Yeah, you can say that again. Uh, right now, you know, I'm a homebody. I stay home fairly often, especially if I'm like not seeing anybody, you know, and the, but my friends here sometimes will go look at farms and one of the people is very intelligent and they bring like a little cooler. So we'll bring milk and cheese and applesauce and stuff. And so, I don't know, that's a good idea. You know, if you're, it's not, I know, I know that's a kind of a pain in the ass, but, uh, the other option is horrific food or, um, not eating anything. So I, that cooler idea really works well for us. Okay, uh, and then if you were at some place like Chicharrones or something, that might be okay. Milk sometimes easy to find. Coke, <laughs> like better than nothing, I guess. Okay, uh, analyze and optimize. This person has a YouTube channel and they have a good serotonin video, so check this person out. I don't know. I'm apologize. I don't know your name. Um, anyways, underarm or oral temperature a more reliable diagnostic for thyroid function? I've noticed my oral temperature uh, is about a degree higher than my armpits. That's my understanding that it's like precisely a degree higher. And so sometimes I'll be talking to somebody and I'll be like, uh, they'll exhibit or they'll be talking about lots of low thyroid symptoms and I'll ask them to measure their pulse and temperature and they'll say it's like 98 and I'll be, and I'll be, it will like be vexing to me. And then we'll find out later that they are measuring their oral temperature and that their armpit is much lower. 
So I think the armpit is the way Broda Barnes did it. And so I just kind of mimic him and do it that way. But it seems more to fall in line with a lot of the things a person is experiencing. Okay. Mr. Dixon says, uh, will you have our autist group chat on the show one of these days? You would really like us. Thanks for everything, Danny. We love you so much. And then pee pee poo poo hates the antichrist says, yes, true. We love you. <laughs> uh, I appreciate it, guys. <laughs> I don't know about this autist group, a chat. Uh, you have to introduce me to it at some point, um, Dan, uh, but, but good for you guys. <laughs> okay. Johnny says, do you think excess deaths in the 65 and overcrowd might actually be caused by medical malpractice due to the protocol doctors were instructed to follow? I'm sure. I could say with like a lot of positivity that that's probably is the case. Um, what did I post? So these are headlines and it's coronavirus. 88% of COVID-19 patients on ventilators didn't survive in New York's hospital system. Study finds almost a death sentence. How Wisconsin doctors peers are rethinking ventilators for coronavirus. Almost nine in 10 COVID-19 patients on ventilators died in study. Ventilators could actually be killing coronavirus patients, feel experts. So, yeah, I think you could even go through, like, the top deaths of, like, the U.S. What is a – maybe it's heart disease and then cancer. Um, I'm too lazy to look it up right now. But the, uh, anyways, then it's, like, iatrogenesis. But I think you can make a case that the cancer and the heart disease are also iatrogenic deaths <laughs> because doctors treat those things in crazy, insane ways, you know, that are likely to kill a person. And so – yeah, the, the reading um, Ivan Illich's medical nemesis is therapeutic. You know, if you are one of the only people on the planet that think doctors are not most of the time not helpful at all and, in fact, make things worse. And so this is Illich, and he says, The true miracle of modern medicine is diabolical. It consists of making not only individuals but whole populations survive on inhumanly low levels of personal health. And then this was a painting by Blake. Anyways, uh, and then I think I had, there was a few other articles. Let me just read. Mm. Oh, here we go. Uh, BBC, do doctor strike strikes save lives? 2008. Industrial action by doctors in Israel seems to be good for their patients' health. Death rates have dropped considerably. <laughs> uh I know I have more here. Um, this is an old quote from 1669. It says, doctors learn it at a risk. They experiment and kill with sovereign impunity. They go further and make the patient responsible. They b blame he who has succumbed. <laughs> Anyways, we could bag a doctors all day, <laughs> but I'm going to have to have to move on here. Um, oh, here's the quote again. Um, yeah. Anyway, you know who called this James Corbett? He said a year ago, like in April or something, that doctors would be like um, these holy figures that you could not question. And I think also people called that they would be firing the doctors without even hesitation when they wouldn't get vaccinated. It's like really funny how the narrative changes and everybody has amnesia about what happened a month ago, much less six months ago or eight months ago or a year ago. Okay. Uh, so whole daily calorie consumption is important. Could I have a large peat diet once per day or should I break it down in small four to five meals per day? I think that would probably be better, um, to have the smaller meals through the day. And I think the only way to know how much calories a person needs is to really go by taste. And then if that doesn't work at all, maybe calculating how much nutrition you're eating and then, um, trying different amounts and seeing if you're hungry at a lower amount versus a higher amount or whatever while, while trying to get full nutrition in. Also, how is Pete compatible with bodybuilding? I would def defer, is that right? right? Refer to, to Kyle Mamunis and Leo Wick. I, I think on Kyle's last stream on Nutrichronology on YouTube, they talked about weightlifting and they're both very intelligent in that area. Uh, also, third question, what is your take on Don, uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Rhonda Patrick and Lifespan Author? I don't know who Lifespan Author is. Um, 
Leo Wick has a must-see critical information video on Rhonda Patrick on his uh, Instagram. <laughs> That's the most important video to watch about uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Uh, but not joking, I, I don't really know that much about... Um, I've seen her on Joe Rogan a few times, and she's like unintelligible or in, unintelligible to me. I don't even know what she's talking about. Like um, She's like kind of one of those people that seems smart, but has like no whole, no picture of what's happening. It's just like, oh, this enzyme over here and this thing over here and nothing is like connecting the dots. It's like a, not a very holistic way to look at the person and health. And that way of viewing things is really um, not interesting to me. Okay. Uh, what dietary advice would you have for a person with addiction issues, uh, restless leg syndrome, ADHD? Thank you. Um, Okay, let's look this up. Just waiting for the internet here, guys. Thank you so much. Appreciate you guys watching. Give this episode a like. <laughs> uh, you leave a comment below. I'll answer it. Um, so-called... Okay, so I'm trying to say... Ray has an excellent newsletter on addiction called Biological Balance in Addiction in 1991. And I kind of summarized the, one of the quotes here. And he says, so-called addiction is an organism in an unstable state that perceives the availability of something which promises to partially restore the desired stability. So the fact that somebody like craves cigarettes or craves chocolate, like I think those things have positive biological effects, you know, for cigarettes also have harmful effects, but I think it has, um, I think it clears the blood of free fatty acids. And so people with diabetes, like I think it's, I think it's been known for a long time. It's like a paradox or something that smokers have like less diabetes. And I think that's, I don't know the mechanism, but in some way, shape or form, maybe it's the nicotine or something that, that helps with uh, glucose oxidation. But of course there's negative parts to smoking. And so I'm saying that the fact that person is attracted to some activity or whatever, uh, I think like Ray is saying that is something that restores um, stability to the organism in some way, or is anti-stress is another way of looking at it. It doesn't necessarily mean it's good. It's just having some anti-stress effect, whether it's alcohol or porn or um, a, a cigarettes or like you name it, you know, like anything people say is uh, so-called addictive. And I don't think it's useful to moralize that behavior. And if you look at it in a physiological way, it's like, okay, how do we restore balance in a safe way? And again, that's why I'm so kind of obsessed with Ray's work is because I think thyroid and progesterone and vitamin D and sugar and calcium are all extremely basic things to help mitigate the stress. And I think in some people that could cause organic behavior changes. Um, but what this person was talking about, um, the, like the, the ADHD, I think that's like the height of being unable to relax, you know, and all the things I just mentioned, they all promote relaxation. The restless leg syndrome, I think that can be associated with bacterial overgrowth. So if this person had bad digestion or gas and things like that, like they might want to check out raised carrot salad or the well-cooked white button mushrooms, or if those didn't work, some kind of antibiotic or something to, uh, if that, if that resonated and if, if that was a problem, cause that'd be a chronic irritation and, um, that could th throw the train off the rails, I think. Okay. We're going to do a milk break here. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, hit the like button. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jessica says, why Mexico? How did you do the move? I've probably said this 10 times, but the I in 2016, I thought the presidential election was making everybody crazy. And then I thought in my brain that if uh, another 9-11 happened, I thought the wheels would come off. And it just so happened the wheels came off when I was in Thailand. And so I had commitments in Thailand and I broke them all off and came back here. And I just, that was like an intuitive thing. And how did I do the move uh, from California? I flew here. You get to stay here for like 180 days. Uh, and I don't even think they're very strict about like if you stay longer than that. But then I did get a temporary visa. And then in February, I, I can apply for a, like a permanent visa. So I will try to do that. Um, and I work online, so it's relatively straightforward, you know, but um, 
it was a bit a big jump i didn't know any spanish my spanish is still very bad but uh it was like learning to walk again you know it's like going into a store and trying to find something or talk to somebody when your spanish is like the worst ever um sterling says anything for premature uh graying of hair the common things that talked about are dhda copper and thyroid and there's a paper by uh i think it's free radical and this other paper uh quotes this one and they say previous studies have pointed a link between cellular aging mechanisms including oxidative stress and hair growing so i think uh during the growth phase of the hair follicle uh i think when that's there's not enough energy and the the electrons aren't fully donated to oxygen that creates free radicals or reactive oxygen species and the those can interact with lipids and proteins but i think the the dye or the pigment in the hair the melanin can also accept kind of like uh free radicals and when it accepts the free radicals it can cause the graying or the kind of the bleaching of hair and so that's my limited understanding of what's going on but this paper talks about it in more detail they say we conclude that oxidative stress in the hair follicle of melanocytes and leads to their selective premature aging and apoptosis the graying hair follicle therefore offers a unique model to study the oxidative stress and aging and to test the anti-aging therapeutics in their ability to slow down or even stop this process excuse me so i think it would just be about uh, limit like another way of talking about oxidative stress is like oxidation is the loss of electrons and reduction is the uh, gain of electrons. And so it's really the, the loss of electrons to proteins and lipids is obviously harmful, but I think the real big problem is the jam of electrons in, uh, in, in cells and tissues. And that creates reductive stress, like too many electrons that can't be donated to oxygen. And then carbon dioxide Regulated by thyroid is, uh, I think, that's allowing a person to use the oxygen that the electrons are being donated to. So that's my simple, very simple understanding. I know it's a, whole, a lot more complex. Uh, and then one other thing. Ray has uh, Ray P D G A come. And so these are things Ray has been asked a few times. He says, I think a safer alternative would be supplement either topically or orally of DHEA. Uh, yeah, I've seen it. DHEA correct it pretty quickly. Uh, foods for increasing copper, or decreasing your iron. Um, shellfish, shrimp, clams, lobster, squid, oysters. And, and then a few people have talked about giving blood, uh, changing hair color. But if you're really sick, you that might uh, make you sicker. So... Proceed with caution. Okay. Mo says, what protocol do you recommend for shrinking an enlarged thyroid in someone with a hypothyroid? Do you think progesterone should not be used until the thyroid size is reduced with the use of raw desiccated thyroid? Ray basically says that exact same thing in his progesterone summaries article. And I've talked to a handful of people that experienced the hyperthyroid effects of taking progesterone. Um, I think... Ray describes it like you have the colloid that the thyroxine is made from and estrogen inhibits the breakdown of the colloid that surrounds the thyroid. And so when you take estrogen, you lower, when you take progesterone, you lower the estrogen. And sometimes I think there's like a excess of T4 that's created real fast. And so the person can feel hyperthyroid. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a good, like a, Ray talks about this. The progesterone deficiency means that something is wrong. It usually means your thyroid is low. And so correcting both is uh, probably a better strategy than correcting either one alone. Uh, can progesterone still be used with someone with enlarged? I think so, but if you felt hyperthyroid, that might be a sign to go the thyroid route first. Uh, Petrus says, Danny, do you have any favorite animals or animals that you find particularly interesting and why? <laughs> Embarrassing, but not, not particularly. Um, nothing that I can really think of off the top of my head unless i'm like forgetting something really obvious um yeah i can't say i've ever put like uh tons of effort into studying one one particular animal yeah i can't i can't think of anything great question (laughs) 
John says, why aren't you a Christian? Uh, so I grew up Christian. I went to like a Southern Baptist church. Uh, a lot of my family didn't even go. It was just me who went and I had a strong youth group and all my friends were in church. Uh, even in high school, all my friends that went to the high school were all like youth group uh, people. We had a real close connection and I learned to play bass, like playing at church, you know, and that like fueled my whole like musical career using air quotes here. Uh, and so, but I don't like the last flirtation with religion was probably when I had Jay Dyer on my show a while ago and he's like an Orthodox Christian. And I was very interested in his like debate style of like what he was talking about with philosophy and stuff. And, um, eventually just kind of like lost interest in it. <laughs> I still really like Jay. I, uh, but, uh, I don't know. I just, uh, stopped, stopped really investigating it. But, um, yeah, I don't, I, I think I have more in common with religious people than like atheists. I can't like stand the, those types of people. So yeah, I mean the usual type of atheist that you'd meet in California or something, but, um, and so, yeah, I think life has purpose and, uh, what specifically is behind that purpose and things like that? Like, um, I couldn't say maybe it's like a Vernadskian type of view, uh, w- which he talks about like th- throwing energy into any system complexifies it. And that will just result in life. But, um, I don't know. I'm not, uh, incredibly knowledgeable in this area, but nothing stands out to me as being no religious idea stands out to me as being like extremely true in terms of creation of the, the earth, you know, or world or universe or whatever. Uh, open to being wrong on that. Just telling you, I haven't experienced, I haven't come across anything that made me think that. Okay. Hi, Danny. You've said that Ray's recommendation of olive oil on the carrot salad, uh, rather than coconut oil has been much more effective for you. Just wondering what specific improvement you've experienced with. Was it simply improved motility? Um, I, for a long time thought that some coconut oils were allergenic or maybe like slightly irritating, and I would probably blame it on something else or something and just not really know what it was, you know, because the carrot is moving like through your intestinal tract, like th- for the whole day. You know what I mean? And so if you have an irritant going through your intestine and you've eaten three meals that day, like how are you going to, it's going to be difficult to pinpoint what's happening. And so I think the real magic was just stopping the coconut oil <laughs> and then switching to the olive oil and it was it was just like an improved sense of intestinal health, you know, uh, not necessarily motility, just uh, very like solid bowel movements. I don't know how to explain it any other way. And so that was just kind of incredible to me. And yet another uh, situation where I was actively eating an irritant, you know, and so it's very hard to avoid irritants in this day and age, even with refined coconut oil, you know, so and also it tastes better. It's just a easier thing to do. And, um, and yeah, I'm glad I bounced it off. Right. Cause he had a great answer when we talked to him about that. Okay. Hey Danny, in your cold head, bald head article, you mentioned that hair is there to keep the brain above a certain temperature. Would being outside or inside in a setting with air temperature constantly above 23 C lead to the body, not needing hair. Do you think running somewhat cold water on the head in the show? Okay. Let me answer this first. Sorry. Um, if a person is hypothyroid and they're out in like a cold environment, I don't think that's helping. Uh, but I think getting the thyroid function up will make a person person more resistant to uh, colder temperatures. You know, like the t- type of cold sensations in hypothyroidism is are like chilling to your core. You know, it's like f- freezing cold hands and feet that like hurts sometimes. And like the genitals and nose and ears can all be cold. It's like a chilling to your core type of cold. And so again, if you worked outdoors or something or like uh, wearing a hat and like covering up, you know, is probably important, but getting the thyroid function up would probably be the most important thing. Uh, do you think running somewhat cold water on the head in the shower, nothing extreme that can be tolerated for five minutes or sleeping in somewhat cold temperature would activate the body's need for hair, activate uh, heat sensitive enzymes? Would the hair exist keeping the brain in it? For a nighttime, I think the temperature should get lower. And so wearing socks or wearing like a beanie or like a thin beanie or something is probably a good idea just to make sure those tissues don't get too cold. Uh, like, uh, water over the head, the cold. Um, uh, I know people take cold showers. I don't think those are necessarily a good idea, but I can't think of anything that's, um, 
can't think of any positive with the running the cold water over the head, but I can't think of really anything negative either. I don't know if it's ever been studied. <laughs> and then uh, I answer all these. Um, anyways, I prefer a colder environment for sleeping. I think it makes it easier to sleep. Some of the worst nights of my life were in like a hot room, you know? Okay. Ellie says three easy tips to help my old parents live longer with a better quality of life. And so this is a very difficult thing talking to your family about health stuff. Uh, but I think the carrot salad, uh, vitamin D, and maybe like a chicken brooder, 250 watt bulb. I think those are the absolute easiest things to employ. And anything else than that sometimes takes a lot of effort. You know, maybe gelatin would be pretty easy, but those are the main things I think. And hopefully they lower the stress and increase the energy and a person has m more energy to solve their own problems and go and they're motivated to do other things. You know, that's always the goal. I think, uh, would you be more willing to share more about the C word and it's V word articles on papers and telegram? Good stuff as always. What's your main concerns? Lipid nanoparticles crossing the blood brain barrier. We could talk all day about the <laughs> like mechanisms and things like that, but the real thing is principle. I will not get this vaccine on principle, you know, because uh, the Pentagon is disgusting and so are these pharmaceutical companies. That's why I won't get it. You don't need some elaborate article. Like I'm not saying Julian does, but like some elaborate speech of like mechanisms and things like that. It's just, it's just in, like being safe of not. Uh, so it's not taking a gigantic risk on criminal organizations that make shitty products, you know, that go inside your body. <laughs> and so uh, let me find something here. Uh, okay. Pfizer has been a habitual offender, pers persistently engaging in illegal and corrupt marketing practices, bribing physicians and suppressing adverse trial results. The company and its subsidiaries have been assessed for $3 billion in criminal convictions. And this is not much different from these other companies, you know, um, from, okay, so here's another one. F uh, 2021, Pfizer recalls the popular anti-smoking drug Chantix uh, or Chantix because it contains a high level, high levels of a cancer causing chemical. <laughs> uh, 2021, J&J, &J, uh, Johnson Johnson recalls five sunscreen products because they can, they contain a cancer causing chemical. These companies cannot make sunscreen. <laughs> or a anti-smoking drug, much less something that is supposed to stimulate your immunity in a new way uh, with new technology invented by the Pentagon that has been uh, uh, eviscerating the Middle East for 20 years. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I mean, this is just insane. You know, this whole thing is completely insane. Um, so anyways, that's why I won't do it. Principle. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Citadel says, uh, uh, you say that antibiotics were the most valuable assay, asset, asset that made you regain optimal health. Please share more about your experience with them. Type, dosages, duration, effects, et cetera. Thank you. Um, so I think in short, this like the safe ones, and again, every brand of these is different, so some might be worse than others, but penicillin VK, erythromycin, clarithromycin, neomycin, although I've never tried neomycin, tetracycline, doxycycline, minocycline, I think those are those are all the ones I've tried before, and the huge caveat is whenever you use an antibiotic, I think you need to you need to get vitamin K. So Mart uh, Constance R. Martin says vitamin K. The vitamins are synthesized by microorganisms of the large intestine. Deficiencies from the use of either antibiotics that kill the bacteria or agents that interfere with the bile production and lipid absorption, and so that's very important if you're going to use antibiotics. And the other thing is they shouldn't be used forever. You know, like they probably be used for a few days or a few weeks or whatever. Uh, I posted this probably on Facebook like years ago, uh, but these are all repeat quotes. Um, maybe if somebody reminds me, I can quote these, post these below in a comment or something. But uh, I like collected all these because I was very interested in Ray's point of view on antibiotics. And he usually recommends taking very small amounts. And so if you go to a doctor and you ask for penicillin VK, they might be like, take 250 milligrams four times per day. But Ray is talking about like taking like 30 or 50 milligrams a few times per day. And so sometimes an antibiotic can have like a mood lifting effect. It can have like an anti-stress effect. It can promote sleep. It can do so many different things because endotoxin is such a gigantic problem. 
that uh, if a person even suspects it, uh, if the carrot salad and the well-cooked white button mushrooms don't do anything, I think it's worth a shot. You know? But I know I realize I'm the you know, Georgie and I are probably the only people in the health sphere uh, saying that. Um, I think we covered all of this. Okay. Hey, Daniel, would you be willing to share the understanding of skin sensitivity, itchiness, inflammation, how cortisone creams are helpful with this short term with relief? What are possible factors to consider for a medium long-term solution giving chronic cortisone usage is not desirable? The only thing I have to add to this is uh, I have studied mast cells a little bit, which are like a type of cell that interfaces with the environment that you have on your skin and your intestinal tract and on your scalp and things like that. And those seem to uh, mobilize and uh, and be activated at sites of inflammation. And so I don't think anything is different for a, a skin problem. And so I think uh, there are a few articles that talk about like progesterone restraining the mobilization and activation of mast cells, uh, carbon dioxide restraining the activation of mast cells. And so it really gets back to anything, everything we're talking about and estrogen and serotonin promoting the mobilization. Like, so again, it's everything we're always talking about from, Thyroid function and keeping the bowel in good shape. Uh, I mean, so many people seem to have bowel uh, situations that manifest into skin situations and cause weird growth patterns on the skin. And so again, this would just be another one of those, like trying to gather as much information I think as possible, getting the TSH, the total cholesterol, the prolactin, the vitamin D, the parathyroid hormone, the serum phosphorus, the reverse T3, assessing the thyroid function with those tests and by the pulse and temperature seeing what the person is eating and things like that, and just trying to play whack-a-mole and cover as many bases as possible because um, that a skin situation like that is just kind of like inflammation out of control, I think, or like an eczema or psoriasis type of situation. Okay. Uh, if I remember correctly, Ray mentioned that calcium was anti-inflammatory. Could a high amount of calcium be beneficial in fighting against infection? I think Ray just released like a newsletter about milk and its anti-infective properties. So I've never studied this. Calcium is related to that renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system that coronavirus activates, apparently. And so I'm sh- I'm sure it's it's a useful thing. Um, in general, Ray slash the bioengineering view speaks positively of antihistamines and anticholinergics. Could there be some negative effect in lowering histamine and acetylcholine too much uh, while trying to... Is it acetylcholine or acetylcholine? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, too much while trying to lower serotonin by using ciproheptadine slash Benadryl. The only thing I have to add to this is I used ciproheptadine probably for over a year. And at one point I noticed it was giving me like really bad dry mouth. And it was like, it seemed like it was causing uh, teeth problems. And so since then I really haven't seriously ever used it consistently. And I think that's the anticholinergic effect. And that causes like um, a decrease in saliva. And so that's really the only thing I know about. Um, so I think that can be an issue for some people. And I think that's why Ray, if you press him, he'll say to try to sort out things like the thyroid and vitamin D and intestine, because the, again, don't get me wrong, Benadryl and ciproheptidine for some people is like a miracle. It's super helpful. But I think the goal should tr- usually be to try to get off those things, you know, um, because they're like the progesterone. They're a sign that something is wrong. And so you probably want to investigate that and try to correct it, you know? Okay. Speaking of milk consumption, let's take another milk break. Okay, guys, thank you so much. Give this episode a like. <laughs> really appreciate it. Subscribe to uh, dannyroddy.substack.com. Totally free. You just get an email whenever we release new content. And okay, it's 940 here. I don't want to be talking too too much past 10 o'clock it's and we're at 44 minutes okay and then ray pete is going to be on next week on the what is that the 24th and george will be back too and that will be extremely uh entertaining okay uh beth says so much of what you eat involves dairy what's your suggestion for milk consumption if i can't do dairy lactose uh if parmigiano reggiano did not work and real parmigiano reggiano has this icon on it and there's lots of like kind of fake parmigiano reggianos around if that didn't work uh then i'd recommend like eggshells or now now's calcium carbonate and that would those that got me over a hump you know i didn't tolerate milk for a long time i did tolerate cheese but those eggshells powdered eggshells that were like a mixed into a dust 
I really noticed a difference from that. So that would be the third best cheese. This uh, probably being equal with milk and then the the eggshells or oyster powdered oyster shells. I would like to know some of your favorite documentary type videos, films covering topics that you and Ray discuss. It seems the type of content is harder and harder to find with the way search results are. I particularly, I am particularly interested in topics such as uh, the agencies, 9-11, uh, uh, oh, okay, see, coronavirus vaccine, American history, elites, other so-called conspiracies, but not just limited to dot, 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 and I uh, cut it off. <laughs> um. I'm really falling out of this. And so I don't, uh, 9-11, the last one I was, somebody else was asking me about this and I recommended like Christopher Bullen's um, Understanding the War on Terror. I thought that was very good. It's not a documentary. It's just like him giving a speech for an hour. And James Corbett's Why, How Big Oil Conquered the World and Why Big Oil Conquered the World is worth watching. Um he has some stuff on coronavirus and, and things like that that are worth watching. Uh, I, I'm really blanking here. I don't. I don't know. I I only watch survival videos now <laughs> and uh, bushcraft videos, and so I don't. I don't really. Uh, I haven't been like f- a few years ago. I used to watch these all the time, but I just can't remember anything that was like especially good. Okay, um, Isaac says, uh, if I gave you unlimited funds to create the ultimate Pete-inspired retreat in Mexico, how would you organize it? What modalities would you like to see offer there? That's a great question. I haven't really thought about this. Um, making it like a pleasant place to be or something. And it would probably cost a lot, but having the rooms be like EMF proof or something like that would be really interesting. Having those brooder types of lights or whatever, like uh, would be really interesting. Um, but I don't know how that would look. I'm not like a design person that would figure out how to do that. But uh, yeah, I we we talking about doing something like this, but nothing has been nothing very serious, you know. And I think most of the effort has been on just survival of. Um, I think they're talking about uh, closing off bank stuff. I think that might be the next domino to fall. Like if you don't want to get a vaccine, you're not going to have access to a bank, and so that would be uh, really bad, you know. And it would be it would make life very hard. I think so. You know, <laughs> I guess we'll have to uh, meet. If that happens, we'll have to meet the new challenge, I guess. Okay. Kennedy says, also, do you filter water? I don't know if we're Kennedy's first question. Maybe I didn't know what it was. Um, do you filter water? Yes, I do. I buy reverse osmosis water and the bathing water is just normal city water. I don't really spend that much time in the shower. I kind of get in and get out real fast and... Um, but for coffee and cooking lamb shank and oxtail, I always use reverse osmosis water and I have a Berkey, but that's more for an emergency. Okay. Tony says, all these questions look great. Excited for the podcast as usual. Thanks, Tony. <laughs> okay. Fab says good cheese, which has high vitamin K2 content has lactic acid as one of its ingredients. What do you still consume it? Pecorino and Parmigiano cheeses are great, but expensive, and not re- readily available all the time. Comte cheese as well as others. Contain lactic acid. Does Compti contain lactic lactic acid? I thought I saw one that didn't. Anyways, Compti is very good. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't have a, like a strong experience with foods that contain lactic acid. I thought Ray said it could contribute to robbing the liver of its glycogen. So that if somebody is very susceptible to that, it might be a problem. But I don't have a personal experience with this, like that I could share with you guys. It might it might be something to watch for if it causes any kind of irritation or something, but I I don't I'm not really sure one way one way or the other. I really only eat Parmesan and Reggiano cheese. <laughs> uh, thoughts on brown rice and if the brain is a five alpha reductase inhibitor. I'm seeing conflicting articles. I I Georgie mentioned this five years ago, um, or maybe not that long, um, 2018 or 19 or something, and uh, I've never researched it. I, I I don't eat rice, so it's. Never really been of interest to me. Uh, thoughts on massive amount of shedding after the addition of T3. Generally keep uh, at 5 to 15 micrograms per day. All brands have the same shedding effect. So you answered that question. But normally I'd say, okay, try uh, Sinomel specifically. Measuring the dose is very important. If a person is eyeballing it, I would not trust that. You can get a huge dose when you think you're getting 5 micrograms. Uh, 
the other thing, I, but if so, say they were getting precisely five micrograms of T3 and taking it after a meal and experiencing some kind of bad effect. My guess for something why like why that would happen. Uh, in general, hyperthyroidism has been shown to increase the need for many dietary essentials, whereas hypothyroidism appears to ameliorate many uh, some dietary deficiencies. And so I think when you start increasing the rate of metabolism, even with like five micrograms of T3, you might need immediately more vitamin A. And so that's where liver comes in. Or you might need immediately more zinc. And that's where oysters come in, comes in. Or copper, which is in both of those foods, or selenium or whatever. And that's why it's so important to fortify the diet with these extremely nutritious foods, you know, because I don't know how to do it any other way. And the last thing I would ask is how this person's intestinal function was. Because I think when that's really irritated, that can cause um, high cortisol and a loss of hair. Okay. Uh, any advice for female recovering from PCOS and infertility after use of birth control and SSRIs? Getting lab tests, um, checking the pulse and temperature, trying to assess where the, per the person is at and how to move forward. So if the thyroid is low, trying to correct that. If the nutrition is terrible, trying to slowly improve that, you know, um, just improving problems that seem debilitating, like the worst problems and then trying to correct them. But getting lab tests and things like that would be very useful for paving a, a road forward and not just spinning your spinning wheels and not going anywhere. And SSRI and, and birth control, like both of those are no joke, you know? Um, and so just not wasting a bunch of time following random advice from people on the internet and like getting, <laughs> getting, getting actual empirical information about what was happening in your body. And then a, approaching things from in that direction. Uh, hello, Danny. Uh, how to get enough B1 every day from food? In standard diet, uh, the answer is in consuming lots of grains, uh, legumes, nuts. One liter of milk is only about 30 to 40% of daily B1. So some people drink like two or three liters of milk per day. Also, I think uh, if I remember right, I think Ray said strong coffee was a source of B1. I can't cor corroborate that. I don't... Um, I have no reason to think he's lying, but uh, I've never seen anything that verified that. Uh, but um, egg yolks, liver, those are sources of B vitamins. But um, yeah, I guess if you a person drinks a lot of milk, they'll be fine. Okay. Uh, hi, Danny. Could you please try to get uh, Kyle Mamunis and Ray together on a podcast? I believe that would make for a very interesting conversation. Yes, it would. <laughs> Uh, so I will not be hosting that conversation. <laughs> I love Kyle like a brother, you know, uh, I've known him for a very long time. And, uh, again, they're like, I mean, there are a few people that have been kind of like with me, I'm using air quotes here through this whole journey, you know, and I met Kyle in 2011 with our friend Lex Rooker. And I think, I think I had just stopped doing carnivore. Kyle was doing like a raw paleo type of diet, I think. And again, I just, uh, he's like almost like family in my point of view, you know, and, uh, I would watch a conversation between Kyle and Ray. Uh, it might just be a little tense. <laughs> so I don't, I wouldn't host that, uh, for fear of, <laughs> of it. I don't know. I don't know what would happen, but it, uh, that's not, not super interesting to me. Um, but I'm not, not interesting me in me hosting it. But again, if Kyle and Ray talked, I would be the first First person to click on YouTube or Spotify or whatever. Okay. Uh, what are your current thoughts on practical EMF mitigation? Thanks. So, yeah, months ago, I talked about the Mercola tent that I bought. And getting in and out of it was annoying. Uh, when it was hot here, it was ultra hot in the tent. And it's sitting over there, and I haven't taken it out for about, like, three months. <laughs> so not the best $500 purchase I've ever made. Uh, but sometimes, you know, I use something later. And so if I do move to a place that is like EMF hell, I would probably bust it out and sleep in it. But, uh, now I'm kind of thinking that a canopy situation is the best. And so save your money on a tent and buy a good canopy and, uh, like a mat to cover the floor, uh, obviously ground it. I would, I would think that's where it's at. And I, I don't know of a good company, but something canopy would probably be the best thing I think. Okay, how many more questions do we have? Okay, I have about eight minutes of answering questions here. Uh, Alex says, what are your suggestions for improving oil production in the skin? I think estrogen is mainly causing the dryness by 
uh, activating the sebaceous glands and then causing them to atrophy over time. So getting the thyroid function up using aspirin, um, correcting the thyroid, the <laughs> correcting the thyroid function, but correcting the intestine, uh, if that's wonky, anything to reduce inflammation, I think, uh, in, in the increase in estrogen. Um, if you were to take one tablet of Sinoplus per day, would you break it into quarters and take one fourth, four times uh, a day daily with meals? Yes, I would. Uh, would you be careful not to have it before exercise in case of making your heart rate too high? Um, well, I would recommend like, uh, I think the usual way to do it is to eat it with food. And so I wouldn't like take it on an empty stomach or anything and then go exercise. That might be a problem. Um, but I don't know. I don't have much experience with that. Like taking thyroid and then, and depend on the exercise, like like controlled weightlifting would probably be better than like breathless exercise. So I don't know. I probably need more information on this, but I, I don't have much experience with that. Okay. If rennet cheese was the main source of calcium and only dairy product in your diet, about how much would you need during a day of eating? I don't know off the top of my head, but you could put, put like Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese in chronometer and then tally it up to getting like 1,500 or 2,000 milligrams of calcium. And that number, 2,500 comes from this paper um, from Fujita. It's a very good paper, but they talk about 2,500. And uh, getting it even less less than this is probably okay, but I think the more you get in the diet, the more anti-stress it is. And so, yeah. Yeah, calculating that on chronometer and then working it into the nutrition. Okay. What dosage of vitamin D do you topically apply on your skin? Right now I have Carlson vitamin D uh, 6,000 IU drops, and I'll use about five of those on my skin uh, almost every day when I remember. Do you use 10% absorption? Uh, do you use the 10% absorption rate calculation? Have you experienced higher or lower absorption of it personally? This is so uh, hard to say because, excuse me, uh, this is very difficult to say because I have no idea how much I'm absorbing. Like I feel it. I can definitely feel a difference with it and without it. But as for like me saying my number is here or my number is there, I haven't had it measured in years. And so I just uh, do a low dose every day and like kind of hope for the best. I probably should get a lab test or something, but I don't really, I don't really care. <laughs> um, but sometimes things will stereotypically start happening to me if my vitamin D goes low, like, uh, Low thyroid symptoms and vitamin D symptoms, in my estimation, are very similar. And so that wake up in the middle of the night, that can happen when my thyroid dose is too low, but it can also happen when I've stopped taking vitamin D or something. And so Ray said a long time ago, he thought that two were so similar that you couldn't separate them. And in my limited experience, it seems seems to be true, you know, um, but yeah, getting a test would obviously be desirable. It's just, uh, I don't even know where to do that in Mexico. I'm sure there's a place, but I never looked looked it up. Okay, tip, Okay, we're at four more minutes. Typical day of eating for you right now. So today I had like three calls in the morning. So I just really drank milk, coffee, and sugar. And when it, that stopped, I had a leftover lamb shank. And I had like another milk and coffee. And... Um, What else? <laughs> I think I only had like one meal today. And then I drank like three liters of milk. Uh, this is like my third liter of milk. Um, and it's like approaching, it's getting really, it's like 10 o'clock right now. Um, so yeah, I, so again, that wasn't totally, you. oh, I had the carrot salad as well after um, about like four o'clock or so. That, yeah, that was a pretty simple day. Oh, and I had a chiramoya as well. <laughs> And then I had a few guavas as well that I have. Uh, so it's kind of just like a snacking day with one meal. Usually I have two meals, but today for some reason it was just one. Okay, a few more minutes here. Can you and more plates, more dates, record a podcast going over hormones and each hormone and main function? I think a great intermediary between like the bodybuilding world and the Ray Pete world is probably somebody like Kyle uh, who knows the science and um, could talk to Derek I, I don't like that might be just a big disagreement thing. Cause I, I don't, I don't really, I don't follow Derek's work, but I don't know what he thinks other than thinking like androgens are responsible for hair loss. And, um, yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, let's do these last two or are these last three. Okay. What else, uh, what else than thyroid affects keratinemia? Does light affect the conversion? 
uh, where is this? Um, why is there such a difference between people eating habits or is there something else stopping the conversion? My understanding is the main thing is thyroid function. And I think there, I think I read somewhere that, um, Oh, is this it? No. So this is what hyperkeratinemia looks like very orange, the palms of the hands and the bottom of the feet. And I think B12 is involved in the conversion as well. Although I don't think I have any papers on it. And, uh, yeah, resolution of hyperkeratinemia with just T4 alone. Oh, maybe zinc is involved in this as well. A vitamin A, protein-rich customary answer to blah, blah, blah. However, beta-carotene um, as intrahepatic zinc content plays an important role in the synthesis of retinol binding protein and secretion together with retinol. We So zinc is very closely related to vitamin A. Maybe it could be related to zinc. Um, yeah, that I, I don't have... Tons of knowledge on that, but I have docked a lot of people that were very orange and t- took a thyroid supplement and it went away. Okay. Wellness, Sarah, specific supplements to take for pregnancy and what to do other than mushrooms and the carrot salad to help with gut motility. Uh, both make the motility slower right now. Thoughts on coffee enemies. I've never tried a coffee enema. Ray said they thought they were dangerous to absorb that much caffeine like uh, immediately in the intestine. Um, constipation you know, sound like a broken record here, but, uh, I think that's uh, most of the time is low thyroid function. And also this, there's a paper on vitamin D and constipation, but, um, constipation is the most commonly seen intestinal effect of hypothyroidism. Reduction of peristalsis and hypothyroidism is the main, uh, pathophysiologic process and constipation remains the most frequent gastrointestinal complaint. Up to 15% of patients have fewer than three bowel movements per week. Symptoms due to slowing of gastrointestinal motility uh, constitute an important problem in most patients with primary hypothyroidism. Hypothyroidism causes slowing of motor activity in all regions of the gastrointestinal tract, and consequently, excuse me, constipation can be seen. So again, if the person had a lower pulse rate and temperature, you'd almost expect them to be uh, constipated. So and investigating thyroid is not counterindicated in pregnancy, you know, um, I don't know where you're at or if you're pregnant or, or whatever, but the um, trying to fix the health problems before coming becoming pregnant is something that Ray mentioned in his Nutrition for Women book. Um, but again, they give so much toxic shit during, to a person during pregnancy. Just not doing those things would probably uh, be uh, like a lot better, you know? Um, getting a nutritious diet with liver and oysters i think you're setting that child up for success you know um and then if that that person has low thyroid function again maybe read about this i i know that a person can correct thyroid function to become pregnant i don't know if i have any articles about taking thyroid during pregnancy but i don't have any reason to suspect that that is uh, dangerous in any way but obviously read read up and link up with somebody that's knowledgeable on, on the subject okay uh maybe last one here uh, what are the unspoken effects of minoxidil on the body? I made a video about this on YouTube. I think it promotes nitric oxide, which is a dangerous mediator of stress and inflammation. How to regain hair growth and the bioenergetic viewpoint, how to reduce congestion, the scalp and gro- growth, better, uh, thicker hair. So maybe check out this article that I just wrote. That's like an introduction to the bi- so-called bioenergetic view <laughs> uh, or the thyroid view or the stress view or the aging view of hair loss. Um, have you ever seen true visible benefits in individuals who followed yours and Dr. Pete's advice? No BS, please. <laughs> yes, I have. Uh, P.S. Uh, how much hair loss did you actually experience? Yeah, uh, I used to have a big fancy hairdo, you know, and I would blow dry my hair and like a f- floor in the front of my mirror and the floor would just be like covered with hair all the time, you know, and so... That, along with the stress I was experiencing from band and loss of libido and bad mood and bad digestion, I always thought they were like a constellation of problems that were happening to me. And so it was never really easy for me to be like, oh, it's just my hair loss. You know, there were so many other problems that it would have been, it would have been like totally lying to myself that there was only one thing wrong with me. So anyways, that was the whole motivation to get into all this physiological stuff and try all those different diets and things. And, um, and yeah, now I'm here. <laughs> okay, guys, uh, I had more questions. I apologize I didn't get to them. I should really wrap this up because 
I talk very loud and <laughs> I'm sure my neighbor does not appreciate that. Do you supplement with magnesium? No, I, I don't. Um, let's just uh, finish that. Uh, Jerry Aikawa uh, talks about thyroid hormone has a direct stimulatory action on the cellular transport of magnesium. A probable but not invariable result of hormonal stimulation of magnesium transport appears to be the preservation of normal cellular concentration of magnesium, i.e. thyroid regulates magnesium inside the cell. So if a person has to take magnesium, magnesium is obviously useful. So many people use it. But if a person has to use it all the time, they might be low thyroid and losing the magnesium. And coffee uh, is a good source of magnesium. So coffee is a better source of magnesium than tea and has appreciable amounts of magnesium. In this article, using 60 grams of instant coffee per liter, not strong coffee, you'll need a 73 to 80 milligrams of magnesium through filtration and 110 to 120 uh, through infusion. And so Ray has been saying this for a long time that a strong uh, cup of strong drip coffee had about 40 milligrams of magnesium. And he makes his coffee by having a half a cup of coffee grinds to two cups of liquid. And I've basically been mimicking him for years. Uh, and you can take a screenshot of this if you're interested in that. Okay, now we'll really wrap it up. Okay, so go to dannyroddy.substack.com, subscribe. I'm not going to you won't be getting offers from me or anything. This is just content, the occasional article, and then, of course, this show. And so we really have no plans to do anything else with that. Um, and is there anything else I need to talk about? Next week, Ray Munpeet with Georgie Dinkoff. And, yeah, you guys are amazing listenership. Uh, we're so fortunate, you know. Uh, to have a smart, intelligent audience that's very supportive. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. It means a lot. And again, give this episode a like, subscribe to the Substack, and we'll see you guys next week. Have a safe weekend. Talk to you guys soon. Peace out.